My name is Peter Fahm, and I'm the director of the Africa Center here at the Atlantic Council. And on behalf of the Atlantic Council's chairman, Governor John Huntsman, and its president, Fred Kemp, it's my pleasure to welcome all of you, those present here at the Council in Washington, and those joining us around the globe through the C-SPAN broadcasts, to this launch of the new book by Jake Bright and Aubrey Ruby, The Next Africa, An Emerging Continent Becomes a Global Powerhouse. Before turning to today's speakers, permit me to say a few words about the Atlantic Council's Africa Center. The Atlantic Council's Africa Center was established in September 2009 with a mission to help transform US and European perspectives and approaches to Africa by emphasizing the building of strong geopolitical partnerships with African states and strengthening economic growth and prosperity on the continent. The center seeks to engage and inform both policymakers and the general public of the strategic importance of Africa, both globally and for American and European interests in particular, through programs and publications, as well as a robust media presence. Within the context of the Atlantic Council's work to promote a constructive US role, in fact, leadership and engagement in international affairs, based on the central role of the Atlantic community in meeting international challenges, the Council's Center supports and collaborates with both the public and private sectors in forging practical solutions to the challenges and opportunities in Africa. It's in the spirit of this mandate that I'm very pleased that we're able to host this particular event. Just a little less than a year ago, during the historic US-Africa Leaders Summit, the largest event any US president has held with African heads of state and government, we here at the Atlantic Council had the privilege of organizing 11 high-level side events, more than any institution in Washington other than the US State Department itself, with presidents, cabinet ministers, business leaders, and representatives of civil society as we celebrated the strengthening of ties between the United States and one of the world's most dynamic and fastest growing regions. Now we're on the eve of another series of important appointments with history. Next week, President Obama will welcome to the White House President Muhammadu Buhari of Nigeria, not only the head of state of the most populous country in Africa and its biggest economy, but also the first democratically elected president from an opposition party to peacefully transition into office in that country's history. Then President Obama will visit Kenya, where he will address the first ever meeting in Sub-Saharan Africa of the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. Of course, last year, the first ever meeting of the Global Entrepreneurship Summit on African soil was held in Marrakesh, Morocco, and we're honored to welcome with us today our good friend, His Excellency the Ambassador of His Majesty the King of Morocco, Rashid Boulao. And then President Obama will travel onward to another fast-growing African economy, that of Ethiopia, the continent's second most populous country, a country of great strategic importance for the United States and its allies. Indeed, as Jake and Aubrey write in their book, the next Africa is the 21st century's great turnaround story. Of course, our guests of honor and your speaker uh, today, you have their biographies. It's really a delight to welcome uh, first uh, Jake Bright, uh, co-author of The Next Africa. Jake is a writer, a consultant, and the Whitehead Fellow at the Foreign Policy Association, uh, where he focuses on international business. He also has previously worked in the Clinton administration, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and on the White House staff as a speechwriter and chief aide on senior economic issues. Uh, also, uh, he's been involved in a number of writing uh, media outlets as well as reporting for which he received, among other honors, the best business column distinction by The Week magazine. And of course, Aubrey Ruby is at home here, and I'd like to take a moment to announce uh, that like all great books, it's already out of date. And by that, I'm not trying to pan the sales, but Aubrey is listed as, uh, in the cover as a visiting fellow, delighted to make public that uh, with the approval of the Executive Office of the Atlantic Council and its board, Aubrey is now a senior fellow at the Africa Center here at the Atlantic Council. So we're delighted on that, our continued association. <laughs> Aubrey's had a, herself a very uh, distinguished career. Aubrey and I 
worked uh, on a number of projects over the years, long before either of us came to the Atlantic Council, and we've our share of war stories from various fronts in Africa. But uh, before joining us, and Aubrey was, of course, managing director of the Whitaker Group, an Africa-based corporate strategy and investment advisory firm, where she helped facilitate two billion billion with a B. Uh, investment and capital flows to Africa. She's worked with numerous Fortune 500 companies. Uh, she's also been rec recognized by Diplomatic Courier magazine as one of the top 99 foreign policy leaders under 33 in Washington. Uh, and I won't say when that honor occurred. Uh, but Aubrey, uh, very much uh, delighted that to be able to host this occasion or here at the Atlantic Council. And then uh, our following uh, presentation by Aubrey and Jake, very delighted to have uh, Leslie Rotten, the senior Reuters State Department correspondent, to moderate the discussion. Uh, we're especially grateful to Leslie for being here on this of all days uh, when anyone associated with the State Department is out either reporting if they're on the journalistic side or spinning if they're on the other side the uh, deal on the Iran nuclear deal that she still made time for us uh, here at the Atlantic Council on this topic which as a native of South Africa I know is very close and very pa uh, a very passionate interest of hers. So thank you very much, Leslie, for joining us. And so without further ado, uh, the people you really came here uh, to listen to, Jake and Aubrey. Can everyone hear us? Ah, Mike, yes. yes. Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, it's obviously a home for me and now a home by proxy for Jake. And thank you for all of you coming today to um, spend the afternoon and a few minutes with us. Um, so many of you have been part of at least both my experience in doing business in Africa and leaders yourselves in doing many innovative things around the continent, but also some that Jake have known for a long time. So we're very honored to be here. And uh, it's a special day for us. So this is the uh, Washington launch of the book. And it's early days still. We just came from San Francisco commenting that uh, it's a little bit of a different culture. We weren't wearing suits there. So um, anyway, with that, we wanted to give a few minutes of overview of our book just to, con to, to frame the conversations we're going to have with uh, on the panel in a few minutes. And one of the ways I wanted to start was just to say, why did we write this book? Um, Jake and I really felt compelled to write this in part to expand the audience of those interested in doing business in Africa. Because for a long time, uh, many of us, at least in Washington, have felt that we've been talking to the same people for years and years and years. And now it's time to reach a broader audience. And at the same time, we had become frustrated with the simple framing of Africa in, in the kind of general dialogue globally. Um, in fact, you see from this picture here, for those of you who can see it, I was recently at a, a large summit on, on power investment in Africa. And this was a report given out there. It's entitled Africa Energy and Infrastructure, and of course has the classic acacia tree on it, which all we know is representative of energy and infrastructure. So um, it was that kind of framing that really motivated us to, uh, to step out and write something ourselves. And so we, standing before you today and every day, are clearly not African. And we are also very aware of that. And we wrote in our introduction and, and in our conversations that we believe that we have spent a lot of time uh, traveling and working on the continent and in, through our perspectives being intermediaries in many, in many situations and many transactions have a perspective to lend as non-Africans doing business in the region. But we've also been listening and spending enormous amount of time with African entrepreneurs um, and others to kind of capture those voices and those profiles that you see. So in the course of the two years or so it took us for the book, we did hundreds of interviews, uh, reviews thousands of sources, and this is kind of the compilation that you see there. Um, we also have, we know that Africa is not a country. Um, we expect that, com that question and conversation and particular criticism to come. But we believe that there are cross-cutting trends that warrant uh, writing a book from a continental perspective. Though if you dig deep, the book is mainly about Kenya, uh, Nigeria, and South Africa, larger markets of the region. Um, but it is about the continent. 
Um, and we, we preface that. So, and then we also believe that there's a centrality to Nigeria to this story. Uh, we're probably going to hear a little bit about that from Igos in a few minutes. But given its size, given its uh, not only its size population-wise, but economically, we put a special emphasis in this book on Nigeria and see it as truly a bellwether for the continent as a whole. A uh, country of 200 million that's probably doubling to 400 million uh, very soon. So the main thesis uh, that we come away from with the book is that essentially there's going to be a normalization in the global dialogue about Africa. It's not going to be as simplistic put in a certain box that it's all this or all that, that the pundit's pendulum is not going to be all, always Afro-apocalypse or Afro-optimism, that there's essentially going to be a mixed bag where you'll have billionaires emerging at the same time we have people risking their lives to make it to Europe across the Mediterranean. And those things will exist side by side the same way that we have billionaires and a homeless population in the same DC area. So it's that kind of normalization of the discussion and that truly we believe on a, on a net basis the, uh, the positives are outweighing the negatives on the continent right now. So we'll give a little thought to the buzz that's been around Africa. Uh, many of you are familiar with it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But it's a, it's a robust growth story. You're seeing growth rates of over 6% uh, over the last decade, continent-wide um, averaging. And we did a quick tally ourselves um, on Google hits. And we saw Google hits increase on search terms like Africa and business, Africa and investment, and Africa and tech increase over a thousand percent. If you looked at Africa and tech uh, prior to 2011, um, there were only a half, a couple dozen uh, Google hits by then, before then. So we really do see there is a buzz. Uh, we're now seeing how that buzz manifests in some real ways. Yeah, so getting to that buzz, um, we backed up a little bit and started to ask and, and ask so that we could explain it, you know, why Africa? You know, why is there this buzz? Why have, uh, you know, all these consulting firms since 2010, almost every major forward-looking global consulting firm has done some report on Africa, this, Africa's consumer markets. And we explain that in detail in the book, but we've also come up with a very brief framework uh, when put on the spot to explain why has there been all this interest in Africa and also connecting Africa very strongly to business, which obviously had a big disassociation before, mm -hmm. and transformation. You hear frequently Africa and transformation. And the basic framework that we came up with is obviously the growth story. This is probably old news to some, um, new news to, to others, but basically since around 2010, and there was a big time when The Economist ran this story showing this chart with Africa's economies and the region exceeding China, where Africa's growth story, meaning the growth of, of several lead economies um, you know, being higher than many other countries in the world, has continued to expand since 2010, and especially coming off the Great Recession, where you weren't looking at a world with a lot of growth um, and booming markets anywhere, uh, that got a lot of business CEOs' attention who previously weren't really looking at Africa. So growth is, is one driver of the next Africa and something that started to get people's attention on Africa. Um, the next one, obviously, is investment. Um, there's a lot of things in Africa that if you look at just five years ago, we're looking at a lot of movements of things that weren't happening even five years ago that are happening and doubling and tripling now. So there's, there's this huge surge of investment going into Africa. Um, you know, in foreign direct investment, you had $55 billion last year. Uh, you have portfolio investments, so stocks and bonds. Um, and you also have diaspora remittances, which is a really big flow of investment, meaning money that, um, you know, your, your African immigrants that, you know, at Goldman Sachs or, or driving a taxi or sending home to relatives. So investment has been surging and there's a lot of deal flow next to that. Um, and that's gotten a lot of people's attention. Um, obviously, the next one is demographics. Uh, we go into detail in the book, but basically when you look at global demographic trends across all the major ones, you come back to Africa. You just can't get away from the numbers. Uh, you know, fastest growing urban population, one of the fastest growing middle classes, uh, you know, doubling, uh, one of the fastest, you know, projected doubling of populations in the world. So you have this huge demographic movement. And then finally, um, there's a big push for modernization. Africa has one, you know, started out with one of the really dilapidated infrastructures in the world, but that's a huge opportunity. So there's a huge mobilization of resources to upgrade Africa's infrastructure, and that includes tech infrastructure, roads, housing, schools, uh, you name it. 
Um, so those are the things that have really started to get people's attention in the business world about Africa. And so one of the reasons why we went with the next Africa, as opposed to something like the African miracle, um, was that we believe that this is a work in progress, um, that there are some distinct differences from what we would call the old Africa, um, but it's not, the transformation is not complete. No one gets off the plane in Togo or you know, in, in Luanda, in Angola, and think, look around and thinks this is a miracle and it's over. Uh, no, this is a transformation underway. So we really thought we'd contrast some of the things that we saw from the old Africa, where many of you have done business for decades, no, uh, has shifted over time. And so one of the things that um, has always struck me is that um, in 2007, I took a group of about seven or eight finance ministers and trade ministers to California. And we went to Google headquarters. And we're standing there, and if any of you have been to Google headquarters, there's a giant globe. And the globe has every Google hit in the world at that moment as it's shown up by a light. And so what you see, because of that, you see the complete outlines of the countries. Um, and each country is a different color. And we all stood there and waited for it to, and it rotates. And we waited for it to rotate towards Africa, and there was no Africa. There was no, it was missing on the globe. And uh, we were all kind of stunned. And it was because there were so few Google hits at that time on a daily basis that they looked like a couple islands. And it caught my attention that it was indicative of the world that Africa was stuck in at that point, which I call a less than 3% world. What do I mean by that? Less than 3% of global trade, less than 3% of global FDI, less than 3% of global F, uh, private equity, Google hits, whatever metric you want to use, Africa was less than 3%, though in population, no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and what we're finally seeing in the next Africa is that it's beginning to break out of that 3% bound, especially on the investment piece. Um, and so that's the contrast we've seen. We've seen a shift away from a very unilateral, simple, trade patterns where things are just going, you know, they're being imported in, finished goods, exported raw goods out. Uh, it's shifting away to more complex and diverse economies. And that the kind of unidimensional foreign relations is shifting away from just the former colonial power to the, um, to the African country uh, into a world that is where African choices, African countries have a choice in partners, whether it's the Turkish investing in Ethiopia, the Brazilians in Angola, um, the Malaysians in Tanzania. They have a range of, of partners in both the corporate and the political sphere. So we see a significant shift in that area. And some other uh, old Africa, next to Africa comparisons that we dug into in the book. Um, old Africa, dependence on foreign aid, uh, next Africa. You see a, a large number of Africans, both in the private sector and also more so in the public sector, really taking charge of Africa's development agenda. Um, on the private sector side, Aubrey and I spoke to, I think, all the major figures. You have some of these icons, these people that are starting to become like the Gates and Rockefellers of Africa, Aliko Dangote, Stride Masayiwa, yeah. Uh, Tony Lamelu, um, they're starting to you know, endow foundations for billions of dollars and really step up and uh, take on some of these socioeconomic development challenges. And that's happening at the government level too. Places like Rwanda have their own development uh, authority that are starting to address some of these things that were previously left to NGOs or, or a combination of government and foreign uh, aid organizations. Um, other uh, comparisons is uh, government is the main source for wealth creation. Um, that's uh, changing, the pie is expanding, and uh, the number of people that can access it is growing, and a lot of that has to do with entrepreneurs um, and, and a surge in business leaders. Um, the other thing we noted is that there's a huge surge in, in um, repat, expat appeal for Africa, meaning diaspora entrepreneurs like Egoza, either directing businesses uh, back to Africa or actually returning to Africa from the U.S. after, worked in the, after having worked in the private sector here. And another thing we picked up on is, is it's not just diaspora entrepreneurs. Africa's starting to show a draw for professional class across the world. One of the companies we interviewed, Jumia, we noted that not only is it bringing back African tech entrepreneurs, it's bringing entrepreneurs that would have worked in big companies anywhere. Um, and that shows, you know, reversal of brain drain, and a lot of that is going into the tech sector. And, uh, you know, we, we covered a lot in this book. You know, we have 12 chapters and three sections, and these are just some examples of numbers. And, and data and personal examples were very important to us. We tried to meld the two together uh, very effectively. 
Um, and just some numbers, uh, you know, quick numbers. Tech is becoming a big influence in Africa, and it's starting to fill this void of these formal, uh, informal economies formalizing. So on tech, we tried to build out numbers. What is going on in African tech? Um, you know, we found there's a, around 200 innovation hubs, which are basically these business incubators that are popping up. IHUB in the corner in Kenya, which the president may visit, is one of them in Kenya, or in Africa, is probably the, the best, best known. Um, we came up with a number for around 3,500 startups. And we worked with TechCrunch to, to come up with a number of how much venture capital has actually gone into African startups. And we're projecting that a billion will have gone in by 2018. Um, you get into FDI, again, breaking out of this, this less than 3% world that Aubrey talked about. Africa is now reaching 4% of global FDI. Um, and a lot of that's having to do with stocks and bonds and a normalization of investment in that now it's easier for individuals like us to buy African stocks and bonds. A lot of African governments have gotten bond ratings recently, and there's been more sovereign bonds issued in the last couple years, we found in the book, than over the last seven. Uh, creative industries. Um, we see a big surge in Africa's global cultural influence, and that's following a formalization of Africa's creative industries. In Nigeria, it was recently uh, quantified that uh, creative industries are worth about $5 billion. And some of that is now, some of the, those creative uh, wares are now making their way back to diaspora communities already embedded in Europe and the US. So that's another trend in the next Africa. And then finally, US influence. Um, African immigrants are you know, becoming increasingly influential in the US. They are now the number one educated group in the country uh, by any def demographic, not just immigrants, by uh, a recent census study. And um, you know, an example of that is Sahili Ibrahim, uh, who is someone we interviewed for the book, who every spring now in New York and DC, there are these newspaper stories of African immigrant uh, kids who come out of high school and get accepted into every single Ivy League school. Sahili was one of them. And so just to conclude before we start our panel, um, we, though very optimistic, are not blind to the downsides and the negative situation that is emerging in some areas of northern Nigeria with Boko Haram, security issues, um, the migration on the, in terms of the Mediterranean, and other challenges that are hitting the continent and specific countries. Um, we have looked at that in depth. We have an entire chapter on potential deal breakers that could derail uh, African growth. And we don't believe all the prosperity will be distributed equally. Some countries will surge ahead while others languish behind. And a lot of that has to do with uh, institutions, uh, geography, and, um, and other factors. So we really are having a kind of nuanced view in the book, and you'll see that. But we do believe that overall that, that the next Africa, the Africa we have in 2015, is a big surge forward and that we will continue to see headlines about uh, you know, new billions invested, uh, new IPOs, um, Nigerian chefs doing pop-up restaurants in the US, uh, fashion designers, more Africans were listed, uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize in literature this year than ever before. And those things are just indicative of what we will continue to see. And we believe those, that, that phenomenon of uh, normalizing the relationship with Africa will make a more uh, deeper relationship between the US and Africa in particular. Yeah, our final line is in the future. Uh, we see uh, Americans being more likely to have African stocks in their 401ks, uh, to buy Kenyan hits off iTunes or watch Nigerian Nollywood movies on Netflix, um, to work at a company that does business in Africa, and definitely to be learning a lot more African names than Nelson Mandela and Barack Obama. <laughs> So with that, we'd love to set up on the panel. Will we join? Yes, yes. The most important thing. Good afternoon and, and welcome everybody. It's wonderful to see a full house. Um, looks like standing room only over the back there. Um, well, we've got, you've, Peter's made the, the introductions over here, but le let me, uh, I also want to introduce Igosa, Igosha um, Amoigui. Did I say that right? Excellent. Another new African name. <laughs> yeah. um, who is uh, the founder and managing uh, general partner of ECHO VC Partners. Uh, venture capital firm, oops, here we go, 
Here you are. You're still alive. Still alive. Here we go. Um, venture capital uh, firm linking Silicon Valley um, with underserved emerging markets, and I'm dying to hear all about uh, what uh, what what you have to tell us about this. Um, but this morning I woke up and I saw, of course, a Reuters article, um, Starbucks to enter Sub-Saharan Africa next year. And my first thought was, are they not late to the market? Have the Rwandans and the uh, Kenyans not taken up this, this market? And, uh, you know, um, and then I read the quote, um, the coffee market here is vibrant and growing fast. We want to be part of that growth. And that's exactly what the African story is. But let me start off with um, an important one, which is the, the, basically the shift that we've seen. Um, Nigeria becoming the largest um, African economy, the most populous country it was always. What does the shift mean in numbers? Um, or is it a translation into real economic power? Let me start with you, Aubrey. What, does this mean anything when you're looking at how you're going to invest in Africa? Uh, I think it does mean uh, a lot for companies looking to the region because, as you'll know, Leslie, historically, U.S. companies, when going to Africa, they saw South Africa as the kind of only gateway in. And so many of them had set up their headquarters in Johannesburg and were, was using that as a... Um, as a kind of staging point for their, their growth. But many of them found growth to be slower in the region, starting from Southern Africa, um, than maybe starting from another part. And they kind of grew to the, to the most neighboring countries, the Botswanas, um, Mozambique, maybe that far, but often didn't make it as thoroughly or as deeply into the other markets. And so you do have, with the shift of Nigeria, uh, in the, at least in the public mind, becoming bigger mm -hmm. uh, with the rebasing of the GDP over a $500 billion economy, that essentially you have companies thinking, well, maybe I don't need to set up shop right away in, in South Africa and I'll just go straight into Lagos. So I think there is a shift in, in corporate strategy when it comes to market entry in response to that. And Gosha, as a Nigerian, I mean, do you feel that shift? I mean, have you felt it for a long time? Have you sat on the edge and wondered why everybody is looking at Southern Africa um, as the vehicle for this entry point? Uh, sure. Uh, so we, so my firm does uh, seed state technology investments uh, into startups in Africa, and and of course, part of what we try to figure out is companies that have product market fit, and 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 Africa has always been an intriguing um, continent in part because the South African story is such an easy story to tell, mm -hmm. um, but the but the real markets, you know, Africa is sort of you know, above water and below water, right? And so what we're sort of more interested in is the iceberg economies, those that are much more interesting below the surface and have undiscovered demand and unmet demand or underserved demand. Yeah. And, and I think Nigeria sort of has started to surface as one of those types of markets. Now, overall, 170 million population is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, one that's going to probably be the third or fourth largest most populated country in, by 2050, that's not insignificant. Right, so the question for a lot of these investors and these strategics uh, would be, are you going to skate to where the puck is going to be, or do you want to sort of play today? Right, and I think for those who are sort of forward-seeking, they're doing, they're doing the former, which is, you know, we're going to go in there and set up and, 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 and work with this market. The market is tough. Uh, there's a lot of friction. Uh, but the winners will be real winners. Right, and I think investors should always follow that. So the question then, Jake, is, I mean, are companies like Starbucks, are they coming to the game late? Should they have been looking at this at least two years ago? You know, that's a tough question. I, I think um, the takeaway is that so many companies are coming to the game and, you know, coming to the game at all who weren't, weren't even showing up. I mean, they didn't even care, have tickets or, you know, want, want to watch even the first quarter before. Um, and just a little anecdotal example is you know when we first started looking at doing this book, uh, I remember like in 2009 and, and you know from 2009 to 2010, there weren't a lot of people that were connecting Africa in business. And we have this this uh, story in the book about how Aubrey, being a consultant that that did that in D.C. You know prior to 2010, 
you know, she kind of felt like the lonely Maytag repair you know, woman or person in Washington compared to other people. But there used to be like a couple articles that came out about US companies focusing on Africa. And literally, we like traded those around like gold nuggets because there were so few of them. Where over the last couple of years, you know, Aubrey and I were completely engaged in this. We got to the point where we're people that are trying to follow this and we have not been able to really follow all the deal flow um, of US companies looking expanding, starting to engage Africa, and also global companies. And I mean, another, another you know, signal of how things have changed in terms of the investment thesis is you know, we started talking to Agosa about African tech. Because African tech initially got a lot of attention uh, for a lot of social ventures. But the question was, you know, when will we have more of a Silicon Valley aligned venture capital invest in business focused startups? And when we first started talking about this, I think it was even a couple years ago, it was more the question of will we start to see things like we see in the US, like exits, yeah. IPOs, um, big acquisitions. We've moved a long way from if, <laughs> you know, where I think the last talks we had with Agosa for the tech chapters is there's no if anymore. It's, it's when, you know, like I think you have a quote on like these things are coming. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a massive shift and it's happened so quickly that it's been even hard for us as people who follow this all, all the time to grasp it all. Well, one of the big questions is whether companies can think they can go in there alone and make it, or whether they really need to tie up with an African company um, who knows the lay of the land and who knows how to basically, you know, navigate their, their way through. What, what has been your experience? Oh, absolutely. I think local partners are critical. Um, and I think that the dialogue around um, African uh, business strategy is unfortunately sometimes dominated by concern over headline risk, so political insecurity or uh, those type of issues. But the real risk that needs to be addressed is counterparty risk, meaning who are you working with? Mm -hmm. um, and that focus uh, is very, very important. So choosing your partners wisely, I think, is the first uh, step on the road to success. Um, I was recently speaking on a panel with, uh, besides the Abraj Group, you know, the private equity fund, and they were saying that they did a study of their investments in, um, in Tunisia, in, uh, and they did, looked at their investments, and they, they invested in consumer goods companies, and they found, they looked at them before the Arab Spring in Tunisia, during the kind of tumultuous riots times, and then after everything settled mm -hmm. down, and they found no difference in the performance of their companies. That the actual headline risk had almost no impact on the consumer growth story in Tunisia. Yeah. And I think many, that, that is analogous to what we will see in many of the markets, that really what's important is that your local partner is good, yeah. and not necessarily as much concern as boardrooms put to, to headline risk. Well, Ngozi, let, let me ask you, how easy was it to, so you, you were in the States and then right. you, you went back home. Correct. And you had a vision. I mean, did you know how tough it was going to be? And how easy was it to break into that market? And how, how easy is it to stay in there? Well, so this is a sort of 10-year plan. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think anything that has to do with Africa has to be at least 10 years. Uh, more like a China strategic plan, maybe 20. Um, so... The original plan was to go back to Africa to start investing. Uh, but recognizing that the market was not quite ready for technology and venture capital uh, when I worked at Intel Capital, my choice was to learn from a very similar emerging market. So I started investing in India and uh, doing consumer internet and mobile investing. Uh, my thesis then was that Africa was five years behind, uh, which would have put me in Africa in 2013. Uh, got to Africa in 2014, so we're kind of right there. Um, but I think, I think for, 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 for us uh, as a firm, uh, uh, going back was a three to four year process, going every month from, from San Francisco. The jet lag is brutal <laughs> and uh, really brutal. And, and, um, you know, and investing before we started investing. So a lot of that was trying to get people to understand what we did, looking for the entrepreneurs, teaching them how to do things, you know, from not just company building, but the importance of culture, the importance of branding, thinking about you know, borderless markets, and, and even the pitch. How do you pitch your company to an investor? Uh, so we did that for several years before we actually opened an office. And then, of course, there's, there's little bits of friction here and there. 
you, you know, you ship a container over and, and uh, they tell you there's a levy on your car. And, you know, and you're like, well, the levy is only for new cars. And they go, well, your car looks new. Um, you know, and so there's this stuff like that that you have to deal with. Um, but, you know, you continue to do that because I think the entrepreneurs there are, are so driven. It is, it, is, it is really incredible. I mean, there's so much friction in these markets. And I think you talked a little bit about it earlier. Um, you know, we have this joke in, in our firm that, you know, we have funded entrepreneurs that we think if we brought them here, they would be lost. Because it's so easy here, they would not know what to do, right? <laughs> like, well, how can I incorporate a company in 30 minutes? That makes no sense. I, don't have, I can't send somebody twice to Abuja, right? <laughs> Why am I doing that? Um, so, and, and I think that, you know, these, 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 these entrepreneurs have a better sense for the, the market needs, yeah. right? And, you know, and so, you know, in India, for instance, what I found that worked for me from a returns perspective was a combination of repats and locals as founders. Uh, in Nigeria right now, we have, I think, one, we have really one repat that's, that's sort of founder, but the rest of them are locals. Never went to school anywhere else, right? Um, one of them has an IOS team that is led by a, women, by, by a woman completely trained on the internet, right. completely self-taught on the internet, right? And so when you see that sort of drive and the desire to win, um, you know, that's for us mm. is, is our perspective. But there's so much risk, right? But we realize as well that for, 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 you know, no one wants to sort of put all the work in at the very beginning. Everybody wants the big companies. Right. All the big money wants to put big money. Yeah. And, but, you know, you don't get to be big companies until you start small. Right, and so I think for us now, the, the work is to, is to teach people how to build an ecosystem mm -hmm. that is collaborative, which is very similar to how we learned how to do it in the Valley. It's very interesting, because you said one of the, the areas you looked at was you looked east, right? You yes. looked to India as, as an example. But both of you decided, you know, Jake and Aubrey, you decided you weren't going to take, take on the, the issue much in depth on China, which I thought was very interesting, because you, certainly in Washington, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a conversation about Africa without China yeah. in it. Um, what, what was, why was, was, did you, did you take that decision? Well, uh, it comes from uh, one of our, our founding premises, which I mentioned earlier in the presentation, which is we believe that Africa has a choice of many partners. And the obsession with China and Washington and London, it's a cottage industry now. Um, and people are, I mean, there's whole institutes just studying the China-Africa uh, kind of nexus. Um, but that truly the, the more important part is that they're a choice of partners. Um, I also think that uh, a lot of the concerns are um, misconstrued. It's always about China investment in Africa. Mm -hmm. And the word investment I have trouble with sometimes because um, the majority of the capital flows that are coming from China into Africa are supporting Chinese companies to build infrastructure. So it's almost perpetuating the construction boom in China mm -hmm. externally, in a way. And they don't, they don't own or manage the projects, the roads, the railroads, et cetera. Once they're built, they give them to the government. And the governments actually borrow from China XM for those. So th that piece of it is a, is a bilateral kind of government to government endeavor um, that I think by putting it in the, the rubric of, of um, private sector investment kind of skews things. Mm. Um, so th for those reasons, we didn't spend a lot of time on it in the book. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm going to open it up for, for questions, because I'm sure you have lots. But um, Jake, if we can just look at this whole issue. Last year at the Africa Summit, there was no mention of aid during that summit at all. Some people think that is wrong, that you, can't, that you still have to discuss areas of development in Africa that need aid, and that it can't only be about investment. What, what do you make of that? Well, I don't think our view is, is to disagree with that. Um, similar to China, we also decided that we were not going to make the book an aid book, um, you know, aid versus trade. But if you read the book and you dig, dig into our chapters, uh, it's pretty clear where we stand on kind of a, we favor uh, the power of investment in markets. Um, to bring about, you know, certain positive trends more so than aid has. But we didn't spend a lot of time focusing on it. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that we set up front, and it was very important in the book for us to have balance. So, you know, we are not saying that Africa's problems are going to go away. In fact, we're saying, we're trying to make a comparison that, you know, we're getting to a point where cross-cutting trends will finally lead the continent's progress to overshadow its problems. But we're very clear that, 
you know, those problems will persist. And they're going to cont continue to persist in like kind of an ebb and flow pattern like they do anywhere else in the world. Um, but for some reason, people think that Africa is supposed to be the straight up or down proposition that, you know, it's, it's either Africa rising or Africa apocalypse and you have to fall on one side or the other. I mean, there's certainly a role to play for aid. Um, there's certainly a lot of humanitarian issues in Africa, socioeconomic challenges. Um, but, you know, as we point out in the book, we think these trends that we're talking about, these monumental shifts that are happening in economies and demographics, in the leadership uh, that's starting to emerge across the African diaspora and on the, on the continent itself, um, it's going to lead to a lesser prominence of aid um, as a necessity in Africa. And it's also going to lead to a lesser influence of outsiders, um, you know, being, having such a dominant role mm -hmm. in socioeconomic events on the continent. So um, when President Obama goes to Kenya, um, Egosha, what, what should he be telling um, Africa about America's interest uh, in the continent? I think, I, think, I mean, I think it, it's, it, it is a very interesting coincidence that he's going, um, you know, in conjunction with the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. Mm. Um, because I think entrepreneurship is the fuel for the continent. Um, I think that what uh, he should really talk about is that you know governments, the 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 the, the, the policymakers, uh, the aid givers, uh, should really focus on empowering these these entrepreneurs. Uh, the mentorship is completely missing in action, so that's one thing that needs to change. How we cross pollinate knowledge first mm -hmm. before we focus on dollars. Um, and you know these are you know the people on the continent want to learn. They all want to be better. They all aspire, right? They're no different aspirationally than us here, right? So giving them the tools to be able to do that, I think, is going to be very important. You know, and I think we talked about this at another event about you know the the, the various programs, the various aid programs, and you know, and there's one of the key issues I see personally is aid is great so long as it's targeted and is measured. And you can figure out the impact and you can course correct when necessary. And that means that you have to put it in the hands of people who have the skill sets to do that. Right? And, and I think that the, the continent still has a few more years you know, of sort of being an aid recipient, you know, bits and pieces. And that's okay, right? Because nobody ever gets to anywhere without some help. Mm. Um, but, but generally speaking, I think what President Obama really just talked about is how we celebrate entrepreneurship and how we, how we get out of the way for yeah. people who are going to execute. And one more thing quickly that we, we talked about in the book is also um, a lot of things that used to be you know, kind of left to the aid world in terms of being Africa's challenges. Aubrey and I have predicted, especially in tech and in some other areas, that those, some of those challenges are going to become commercial propositions, um, no longer left to simply aid agencies. And when you look into what IBM is doing, and IBM worked with us, was very cooperative with the book, and their IBM Research Center, and, and deploying, they're building Lucy in Africa, which is a version of Watson. Um, and one of the, the titles is to take on Africa's longstanding challenges. Um, that's a shift, we think, in a direction of some of Africa's problems that were connected with aid being a solution are going to become commercial um, opportunities in the future. And I will say that with this book, I mean, I, I learned the most incredible amounts of these deals. And, uh, and half the, the, the companies you're talking about, I'd never heard of. So. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing. So for that reason, I would uh, advise you to get the book. Um, but let me open it to the floor. Let's keep the questions very short. Make sure they're not long statements or um, you know, pounding a, us with philosophy. Just <laughs> let us know what's going on. Can I have a gentleman in the back there? Yeah. Uh, thank you. I'm Gitacho from Wilson Center. Uh, my question is that uh, in relation to the recent uh, investment in Africa, uh, nowadays uh, different countries from different parts of the world have been investing uh, in Africa, for, for example, China, India, Turkey, and, and Brazil. Uh, so do you think this is a very challenging for, the, the for, for American companies to compute, to penetrate to Africa and compete with those different types of uh, uh, other campaigns of the world. Thank you very much indeed. 
So is it how challenging is it for, an Amer for American companies? Because you spoke about you know, yeah. Indian companies. Are very, how challenging is for American companies to break in? And really, when you go to these parts of, parts of Africa, you don't hear about American investors. Do you? Um, so we need to acknowledge that too. So yeah. So so two points there. One, um, the U.S. is still one of the largest investors, uh, FDI investors in African countries. Uh, I think the most recent stats, if you use the Ernst and Young ones, shows that it surged ahead to become last year the highest investor on FDI, pure private sector FDI projects. Um, you know, Procter and Gamble alone in 2013 put uh, about half a billion dollars into manufacturing facilities, one in South Africa, one in Nigeria. Um, so they are there, uh, but I would say they do face some competitive challenges, and some of those challenges are purely um, uh, from they stem from operating in developed markets for so long. Um, it's just like if we all look out the window and we think that the rest of the world lives like that we do, okay. uh, we actually are abnormal <laughs> for the rest of the world. Um, you know, traffic, the way that the rest of the, you know the urban cities of the world operate, very different than uh, the developed world. So what I see companies struggling with is what I call a developed market mindset. They're stuck in working the way they've always worked. And one of the advantages that companies, say, from India or China have is that it's not hard for them to do business in villages because they have villages in their own countries. Right. And so they're used to the kind of throes and messiness of rapid development. Um, we were used to that in the 1890s. Uh, it's been a while, so we've forgotten. I mean, Igosh and I were talking about how you can't have a, um, open a, f a company in South Africa anymore without having at least not one, but two generators in case the one breaks down. So um, can you talk more about the challenges that... Sure. I mean, where do I start? So, <laughs> so, so we solve all those challenges by finding high conviction entrepreneurs. Uh, but, but there are lots of little challenges, right? And, and uh, your ability to sort of power through them, uh, you know, is what separates the winners, winners from the losers. And, you know, and I think the question was a really good one because when you stop to think about it, um, you know, some of the companies that are coming from different countries um, are, are funded in many unique ways. Uh, they, have off, they have balance sheet numbers and they have off-balance sheet support. And so, you know, an American company that's sort of trying to compete on its balance sheet alone uh, is coming in clean and, and may, you know, the rules are a little bit different, right? So you, you, it's, it's tough, right? So you have to sort of really focus on your product and product market fit and the like. But for the entrepreneurs that are local, you know, you can start from how do I incorporate this company? What licenses do I need to get? Um, is the tax service going to change their rules tomorrow? You know, um, you know, foreign, you know, foreign exchange volatility. I mean, you're seeing that in Nigeria right now. One day is 2.30, the next week is 2.40 to the dollar, and you know, you're, you're, you have an, you know, you have a, you know, a, an order, and someone's telling you that your, 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 your cost has changed by 30%. It's, it's brutal to, to, to compete when you're dealing with that. Uh, but these entrepreneurs are also sort of, you know, they're built differently. You know, they're, they're, they're built to win, um, and these are just. You know, these are just little, you know, people are taking pot shots at them, but they, they, they continue. So for us, you know, we've said to ourselves, you know, these entrepreneurs, some of them don't fit the, the paradigms that we are familiar with here again, very similar. You know, some of them don't speak the Queen's English. Yes. And, uh, you know, and they may not sort of look and feel like you're, you're used to, but they, they execute. Right. right. And so you know what you can bring value-wise. You know, you bring the money, you bring the mentorship, and you get out of the way. Right, and and that's I think I think we, we see that over and over again, and we, we know that's what we're going to do, and we hope you know that more people will sort of get involved and realize that while you're going to take some significant risk anyway, uh, these companies generate will be the, the generators for the future. I mean, but isn't that ch Africa's challenge is changing rules? You know, because you can't change the rules on business invest, and that doesn't investors don't like that kind of uncertainty. So well, that's one of the the challenges that that policymakers. You know, need to get across. And I absolutely, I, I, I mean, no pun intended, I echo that. It's very important to have. <laughs> yes. That's the name of his firm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very important to have that certainty. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's sort of 30,000 foot certainty and then there's 100 foot certainty. And most entrepreneurs will be fine with 20 or 10,000 foot certainty. Yeah. They can deal with the rest of it's it. It's certainty of process. See, Correct. that's the difference because here, 
like, you know, the Congress can let GSP expire. That's uncertain. Companies don't know, but they generally know how to engage with Congress. They generally know how to engage with the executive branch to understand the Correct. process and getting their voices heard, where it, come, where it breaks down often in, in some African countries, but also de other developing countries is not clear about the process. Right. Who actually makes this decision? You know, we have this situation right now in Nigeria, not having a cabinet, Correct. you know, this, this yet. Um, so the issue is who makes the decision? Where is, it, where is it coming from? What's the process? When can we have our voices heard? And it's not necessarily the policy itself, it's the process. So I'm going to take two more questions quick because I've been given the five minute, oh. uh, the five minute line. Can I take this gentleman? Dave Ramaswamy with Africa Agribusiness Magazine. I want to touch upon two things you mentioned. One is framing and the second is Starbucks. We in America have been led to believe that Africa is a continent where we need to supply food. And that aid narrative has drawn our policy making over the last 40 years. And even now, Sub-Saharan Africa imports $50 billion worth of food. With its ideal conditions for farming, that's as absurd as Washington, D.C. importing lobbies. Mm -hmm. So how do we change the narrative to tell American companies about the investment opportunities in African farming and related to Starbucks? In Ethiopia, Starbucks pays coffee cooperatives 30 to 40 cents a pound, like a broker for coffee, mm -hmm. and retails coffee here in the United yeah. States between 13 and $15 a pound. So the, on the other side, how do we ensure or take steps that Africa captures more value of what it produces? Thank you. Good questions. Good questions. So on the first one, um, I think uh, we're starting to see more interest in agribusiness investment. Um, and part of that is um, coming from a, a larger um, market view in terms of the consumer class. So the idea that you don't have to just invest in agriculture to export out. It doesn't have to be export-led agricultural investment, but that there's enough of a consuming class that's growing that's going to, you know, to buy the food right there. Um, and I have been recently talking to several private equity funds that are very interested in agricultural uh, investment. I think one of the, the risk profile of agricultural investment, especially the growing, so all the way upstream greenfield, is that it does, you, you come into land tenure issues and land availability issues, and that's where it can, it can break down. So I tend to find more investors very interested in like processing and that piece, but don't necessarily want to do the hard work of all the way upstream. Um, but hopefully, if there is that pulling demand, we're going to see more, indeed. I'm going to take uh, one more question because we really have only a little bit. Can we have the, the woman over there? Yeah. Lady, yes. Uh, Francis Harden. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is about the, I mean, the question I wanted to ask you is, is about what has always been a daunting challenge, and that is corruption. And um, the need for bribes and greasing palms and all that sort of thing has been a very um, off-putting to many Western investors. What is the situation now? One of the, the big big challenges yeah, yeah, so and one of the things that concerns investors. I'll, I'll start off with, with, with what we, how we do it. Um, so we, we, I talked a little bit about sort of how to inculcate and impart culture, the importance of culture in, in, in young companies. And, and we start that from the very beginning with diligence. Um, so you know, all our agreements have FCPA style clauses. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a specific FCPA style diligence questionnaire that, it, that, is, that is attached to the agreements. And we go through this. We spend a couple of hours just talking about this and how to do business. We understand that in some cases, um, you know, there are many you know, these, these obstacles and what I call toll gates that, um, that show up. And you know, what we try to impart to entrepreneurs is really about trying to figure out who in, in, in these ministries and whatever it is understand what they're doing. Right? And usually you can find one or two people who would do it for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. Right? And, and I think, you know, I don't want to be naive about it. You're going to keep running into this. I mean, I have done business in Asia, in China, and in India, and in Korea, and in Japan. And I will tell you, I have seen it there too. In some cases, real scale. And, and so it's not because it's a unique thing to Africa. I think a lot of it is just making sure that you can find the right people 
who would do these things with rising, and you know, really sort of a collective investment in the role growth of the ecosystem. But don't, if you are afraid of corruption, and that is what's holding you back, uh, then you know, I mean, I think in many cases you're not going to, you should not really be in a lot of markets, and that includes this one. Plastic, can I just and that, and yes. that includes this one. Jake? I think I can connect um, a response to your question and also the second half of the gentleman's question here about you know, what we should do uh, related to you know, assuring fair wages or that wasn't your question but also about the question of corruption. I think my, my response to the first part was what, what we should do to bring fair labor standards or higher wages to Starbucks activity in Africa. I'm not sure it's, it's for us to do. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is how some of the trends that we talk about in terms of a rising middle class, about you know, increased political involvement, those things come with greater investment, with people having more upward mobility. And you're seeing the rise of an African civic society. They're going to take on those issues themselves, just like it happened here, and demand some of those things. Um, and that ties into corruption, too. Um, there's greater transparency with tech. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been outed in Nigeria. And also, one of the people we profile is Omiela Shuare, who is the head of Sapara Reporters, who now is reporting on all these things about corruption in Nigeria that were hard to report on before. They fly across the internet. And you've seen Nigerian politicians answering to more stuff. And he's even done, he's even done stories where people have gotten fired um, because of the stories he's done from Sahara reporters here in the US. There's a lot more pushback on corruption. And then finally, um, with the greater connectivity of markets, another thing we saw with Nigeria is when African countries uh, have higher traded currencies, um, when Nigeria issues you know, a billion and a half of bonds that are they're globally rated by Moody's and now in investment por portfolios here, um, one could argue that this issue of corruption with this $20 billion uh, whistleblower case in Nigeria, that it, it swayed the election and it also affected financial markets. So um, you know, there's a lot of trends on the African continent connected to things we're talking about, where Africa and African institutions and African democracy um, we'll start to deal with you know, these labor issues or uh, corruption issues you know, on, on their did. own terms. You were going to say? No, the same way that we did in the US. Yes. I mean, uh, the election of 1900 basically bought by oligarchs. You know, so we basically dealt with this over time um, and had the same kind of processes. It's just we have very short memories. Peter, how much time do we have left? I would, this, this conversation we should have started many hours ago. <laughs> We're having too much fun. We're having we can keep going. Okay. So, um, well, yeah, if you guys had a crystal ball, where is the next big thing in Africa? I'm going to start with you, Igosha. Oh, it's easy. The next big thing. Yes. Where, where should people be putting their money? What should we be looking at? Where is the next trend? What... Come on, what's uh, what's? So I think as we as we, as we talked about, um, it was a few days ago where we were talking in, in uh, one of my internal meetings and a map of the world by internet populations was generated, and uh, and Africa was resized, and Nigeria was probably about five eighths of Africa. So that should tell you where you should invest. Okay. <laughs> Jake? You know, it goes back to our Nigeria is a bellwether. Um, when you get into the numbers around Nigeria, and especially in tech or consumer goods or anything, when you connect the increased investment with the increase in consumer power, um, and then the sheer population numbers, pretty much what you have in Ecosa, we talked about this a lot in the tech chapters, any home run you can hit with that, if you can scale that up on a revenue basis, you're going to see the next, uh, the first African billionaire or millionaire on the cover of the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal. So a lot of things go back to Nigeria, um, I think, in tech. And um, has talked, I mean, Eghost has invested in a lot of companies that are solving business problems. One that will, I think Aubrey and I have talked about is that a lot of people haven't focused on is um, potentially companies that are doing things with Africa's creative industries. Um, for example, uh, uh, Iroko Partners which is this company that we had up on the slide, is trying to solve monetization and distribution problems with African creative wares, right? Because Nollywood is the second largest film industry in the world, Nigeria's film industry. But in terms of revenue, less than 1% of the $5 billion 
you know, can be traced back to actually going to the people who produce this stuff. So the point is that if Jason and some of these other platforms that are solving this, if they can solve this for, for Nigeria and the rest of Africa, it's going to make them a lot of money there. But we also uncovered that Netflix is talking to Oroco partners. Because if, if companies like this can solve these problems for, for African uh, monetization, then they also solve them for American companies that have faced the same problems in getting returns on their pirated movies and creative uh, you know, industry stuff too. Over you got a minute. Uh, I'll leave, well, I leave the tech to, to Jake and Agosa because they know it better. Um, I'm bullish on sectors related to construction. Uh, infrastructure and construction in Africa are going to be growth uh, industries for 50 years, 100 years. And so things like paint factories, um, hinge factories, all the things, doorknob, everything you need for construction um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I think, are going to be uh, fast-growing companies. Um, and I also am bullish on Ethiopia. Uh, it's a very large population, and they're moving quickly, implementing, uh, implementing a, a very aggressive infrastructure plan, uh, including the first light rail opening up. Um, so I'm very, very bullish on Ethiopia. Well, as I said, we barely touched anything. To find the answers to the rest, uh, the book is, has the answers. <laughs> Thank you very much, and appreciate you coming out. Thank you. Thank you.